Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Matt Gates says he may be attorney general if Trump is reelected. Well, there's a pretty good reason not to vote for Trump. We have such a great show for you today. Former Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan joins us to talk about his new pack, We the People. Then we'll talk to grist writer Jake Biddle about climate displacement and how climate change will change all of our lives. But first, we have NBC News correspondent Von Hilliard. Welcome to Fast Politics, Von Hilliard. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me, Molly. I am so excited to have you. And I want to like tell the story of, you know, I've watched you on television for a million years. And even though you're quite young, so it hasn't been a million years, but I've always been a fan. (laughs) It's turned into a million years, so I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) So acknowledgement that it's been more than a couple years (laughs) is actually appreciated. (laughs) We were on Morning Joe together and I was watching you in the segment before me. It was like actually as I was listening to it I was getting more and more upset and anxious and I thought oh my god this is really really worrying and scary and why are we not sounding the alarm on this all the time and so I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about where you just were who you just interviewed and what they just said right I I mean I was so I was in New Hampshire just literally the night before we were on Morning Joe together, and this was Trump's first rally since the indictment on the federal charges related to that first overturn last election. And one thing when I've been going to these, and I know you've been to them, I've been going to these now since 2015. And the thing that strikes me, number one, how often there are, number one, first-timers at these events. Number two, though, in conversations with these voters repeatedly, you hear very dire type of description. So this one woman I was talking to the other day was talking openly about civil war. I mean, she's saying this on camera. This is not like passing comments. It, it is these people saying that they will openly go and defend another man and will go openly and go and defend Donald Trump if they were to try to put him into prison. But it's very violent, warlike rhetoric that these otherwise normal people, normal Americans are talking in. It's one person after the next. These aren't just one-offs. And it's like that balance of, do we want to promote them? No. But at some point, we have to acknowledge that these aren't just a, a few random individuals. This is widespread across the country. We talk a lot about media bubbles. There wouldn't have been so many donors so smugly excited about 
DeSantis had they not lived in a media bubble, right? I mean, because or even just met anyone in Florida who was like, the guy's kind of weird. <laughs> so that is why I wanted when I was listening to you, I was thinking because, you know, I don't think of New Hampshire as Mississippi. I think of New Hampshire as a very mixed state, but it's actually been largely a blue state. I wanted to ask you, you know, you have been doing this since 2015. So you really have seen uh, progression. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how these attendees have changed. Yeah. You know, I think Donald Trump actually said it best himself in New Hampshire the other day from the stage. He said that the MAGA bakes is more spirited than ever before. Spirited and passionate were his words than ever before. And I turned to my producer, Dan. And I was just like, he's absolutely right. It's maybe a smaller base, right? There's maybe some folks that have got off the MAGA train, the Trump train. But those that are still in it are more fervent and serious than ever before. In 2015, 2016, it was the Trump theater show, right? It was laughing as he mocked the physical appearances of Carly Fiorina and Marco Rubio drinking out of a water bottle, right? But then that devolved into 2020 and we all lived through January 6th. But now, you know, when he talks about revenge and retribution, like the people are listening to him. Those aren't just, it's not a campaign line. I mean, it, it is it, it is outside of a, an election that we are talking about. It is a fundamental effort to take back in their minds the government. And like, I remember uh, it was in October of last year, uh, ahead of the midterm elections, just a couple of weeks before, outside of Mesa, Arizona. And I mean, this is right. Carrie Lake was at the event. Mark Finchum, the Secretary of State candidate who was an election denier. I mean, these folks, it was 90 something degrees. And this man came up to me after I had asked him to talk to him on camera. He didn't say these words on camera to me, but he came up to me and he goes, you know, you seem like a nice guy, but you're with NBC. And he goes, I just want you to know, like the corporate media are going to be among the first to go. And it took me aback. I didn't even know how to respond. Among the first to go. We know exactly what he was talking about, Molly. And this man, I don't think he had truly like was a bad man. But he was talking about very dire terms because that's how serious he takes this moment. It's almost more dangerous because there are less of them and they are more worried, right? Right. And look, I mean, you, you just wrote about this. The Republican lawmakers that are otherwise supposed to be respected statesmen from their respective states, representing them either at the state level or at the federal level, have legitimized or offered you know, credence to Donald Trump in this movement and continue to stick by him. So I, I think the words that you wrote this week were perfect because for these folks, right, it is worth sticking as part of this army, if you will, this this side until somebody tells them otherwise. And, and Ron DeSantis, right, the super back spent tens of millions of dollars at this point to promote their candidate. But it's, it's not like you're seeing some widespread $100 million campaign from the right to lay out, you know, the flaws of Donald Trump. Chris Christie is doing that. But really, Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, <laughs> they've only got so much firepower behind them and only so much legitimacy in this Republican Party. What are the ways in which or how could this be stopped? Like if you wanted to take the temperature down, if your question was, what would you think? I mean, now you've seen these people, you've seen this sort of look in their eyes. I mean, what do you think would do it? Right. Because they are living on Earth, too. Right. I mean, they think he won 2020. I mean, they're sort of so far down the rabbit hole. They probably think what they're doing is the right thing. Right. Truthfully, I appreciate NBC for having me go to these events around the country consistently over the last several years, because I don't think that necessarily even our politicians who are some uh, enablers or allies of Donald Trump understand the seriousness of it. I really don't. I thought January 6th would be a wake up call and it was for at least several weeks or months. But I still don't think that these politicians are necessarily having these types of conversations repeatedly with folks about civil war. And if they are, I'm not right there for every one of their combos in life, but if they are, then boy, they are complicit in something that, knowingly complicit in something that is increasingly dangerous. Because I don't know what the next January 6th is, but I think we're heading to that point. And so what is the solution? Number one, it's Donald Trump telling people uh, you know, that violence and that uh, you know, that this is a legitimate justice system here in the country. But obviously he has shown that that is he's going to take the exact opposite measure. Otherwise, it's going to be a united, I think, political front, which we have not seen Republicans be willing to take a stand. And that's nine years running. I don't I don't know what honestly changes it. Yeah. I mean, I do think that if you could get Republicans to, you know, 
really, I mean, people like Matt Gates, you know, instead of talking about immunity to say, look, you know, we may not be happy with what, you know, how this is going, but there's been a lot of investigation in the 2020 election and it's clearly was a legitimate election. But he has so successfully, though, thrown so many of the Republicans that have sidestepped away from him off the cliff and with no punishment. You know, I mean, Kim Reynolds is the latest, you know, the governor of Iowa. And just because he didn't invite her to come speak at a recent event last month, suddenly Kim Reynolds is all but dead to him. And so, I mean, are, is this going to prove again? And Kim Reynolds didn't even say anything bad about Donald Trump. She just didn't come and call him to speak before his event. So, and maybe, and also when it spoke at Ron DeSantis' event. So, I mean, at some point, Republicans have realized that Donald Trump has a very real shade in 2016 and 2020. If he were to win again, he would be in the White House for 40 years. And so do they want to be a part of the political process. And that's what the calculation they're all making, I think, right now. I mean, so it is really an issue of self-preservation versus preservation of democracy. I'm just curious, though, when you're in these spaces, when you're at these rallies, it doesn't seem to me like the rhetoric has changed all that much on Trump's part. On Trump's part. The other day, it was the most defiant that I had felt him. And and again, that's why I wish that when I stand in these events, I wish that everybody, you know, my family and other politicians and other journalists were all in that room there because you can see the way that people respond to him is increasingly you're cheering on your your ball club in a way that is you feel it in the room that people are following him and they feel like this is a fight. It's religious. And they're trying to, frankly, keep their man out of prison. That is what this election is suddenly about in 2024. And, you know, I, I, I've been to, I don't know how many state fairs over the years from Iowa to Nebraska to Kansas. And I, it was a couple of years ago in Missouri at the state fair. I remember talking to this woman and, you know, she was she made me a plate of food. She was, a, you know, a sweetheart. And then we started talking, though, and she was truly concerned. This is 2018. It turned into a very dark place. This, the, this woman who was very concerned about the future of her country. And that is where Donald Trump has led these people. And it, and it happens over a period of time. You consume right-wing media from OAN to Newsmax to Fox. And it, it increasingly becomes a saving the a saving American democracy in their way. You know, we're talking about saving democracy. They have a very different view of what the effort to save democracy looks like. And it is the view that, of Donald Trump's that uh, others are trying to take it away from him. And so it's very difficult, I've, you know, in trying to converse with voters these days to even understand and mark the way through the conspiracy theories, because, you know, why do they stand by Donald Trump? It's complex and it's almost a decade uh, worth of layers at this point to try to work your way through to wholly understand it. Can you talk a little bit about some of the sort of ways in which he attacks his enemies? Because I was thinking about the sort of Fannie Willis, his attacks on her. They remind me of his attacks on Hillary. Right. Frankly, the other day at this New Hampshire rally, I don't even want to repeat the specific claim, but he made a case about an alleged previous relationship she had had with a gang member. It, these are the parts, though, that people latch on to. You know, if you talk about Jack Smith's past, you know, family relations, and these people aren't booking, though, generally for the actual truth, because Donald Trump is their truth teller. Donald Trump is their, is, is their leader, and they are the followers of him, and what he says is truth. And so his attacks on Fonnie Willis, you know, he calls her racist at every single rally. He calls Letitia James a racist at every time he brings up the New York Attorney General's civil case against the Trump organization, him and his kids. We're just getting details out of Utah. The man who uh, died after the FBI was serving the arrest warrant for the serious threats that he made against the life, allegedly, of President Biden and Alvin Bragg, the district attorney in Manhattan. And we you know, watched earlier this spring, Molly, right? We watched his attacks uh, incessantly against Alvin Bragg. At one point, he, you know, put on social media an image of Alvin Bragg next to Donald Trump with the baseball. Yeah. And, you know, Donald Trump may view this as a game, right, where he can just, you know, put social media posts out and go around the country and act like a rock star and lambast his perceived enemies. But I can tell you that his followers, they don't view this as a game or just politics. They view this as a uh, as a fight to hold on to 
this country that Donald Trump is telling them that he's leading. And where does this end? I, I that's the part that scares me the most, Molly. I, I don't whether he's put in prison or loses another election. I know that there are millions of Americans who believe the consequences of either of those two things are too dire for them to not take a more active stand because I believe there's a great number of Americans that believe that going to the ballot box alone is not enough, uh, uh, is not worthy enough or enough on their part to stand up for this country, that it could very well take something much greater action than just a vote alone and, uh, you know, to truly be there in defense of Donald Trump and their country. It's odd because it's so scary and it is kind of amazing that nothing has happened. I mean, I don't even want to talk like this because all any of us want is for there not to be violence and they're not and people not to hurt each other. And and in fact, the reason why you're talking about this is because you really I can hear it in your voice concerns that this could happen. I don't think a lot of people like that even work for the Trump campaign necessarily are inherently bad people. Right. But I don't think folks are truly understanding in this country. Right. Everybody has a neighbor that has voted for Donald Trump or continues to support him. I don't think they're necessarily bad people. I just don't think by and large we understand enough the gravity of just how much of a threat some people pose to elected leaders and even their neighbors. What's fundamentally so scary and why I feel like it's so important that you're talking about this is that you're seeing something that, you know, who even knows if people, I mean, certainly Trump probably sees what's going on. But I think there's something that's scary that, you know, a lot of people are not seeing, which is why it's so important that you talk about it. Right. This isn't about conservatism or liberalism. It is about the power grab that a great number of Americans feel like they must be a part of in order to you know, rightfully take back the White House that they believe was owed to Donald Trump. And if, you are, if you're a patriotic American, then it is up to you to do what it takes to stand by the man that you believe should rightfully be there. And that's the way that so many of them view it. Right. And so much of our job in the media is is really to prevent violence in any way we can. So the fact that you're talking about this, because I, I think that a lot of people who are not like extremely tuned in to the political situation perhaps have forgotten about like these Trump rallies. You know, it's a very small section of the population that is so passionate, but that doesn't, you know, many of them are very, very well armed to do. And I hope Donald Trump takes the violence seriously. You know, I'd like to believe good enough of another man to believe that they do not want a violent outcome of this. The one part that gives me pause, though, Molly, is the fact that at a great number of these rallies, he has openly talked about pardoning January 6th defendants, those who used violence in the past to try to stop a peaceful transfer of power. So he is already suggesting openly pardoning folks who have used violence in the past. That's the part that gives me pause. And I hope at some point Donald Trump and others around him say, we must be a louder voice against this now, despite whatever grievances they may have against the justice system, because violence is a, a result that I, I have a hard time believing any other fellow American actually wants to see in this. And they need to listen to those comments by their own supporters. When they talk about civil war, they mean it and they need to be more outspoken and say that that is not a path forward for this country. Vaughn Hilliard, thank you so much for joining us. An absolutely stark but really important message. I appreciate it, Michael. Thanks so much for talking it through. I appreciate you. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick 
and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tim Ryan is a former congressman and founder of We the People. You can find more information about We the People at wethepeople250.us. Welcome to Fast Politics, Tim Ryan. Thanks for having me. First, we're going to talk. You've launched an action fund. Explain to us what it is and what it does, and then we're going to just get into Ohio. Yeah, cool. No, thanks for the opportunity. Great to be with you. It's called We the People 250 Action Fund, and uh, it's we're organizing this around the 250th birthday of the United States of America. And, you know, it's a minor miracle we've made it this far. And, you know, those of us out here in the fight with kids, it's uh, we want to keep it rolling. And this is going to be the home for the exhausted majority. I mean, anybody who's been paying a lick of attention to the politics in the last decade plus uh, here, even more, it's exhausting. And, and, you know, my fear, talking to friends back home, people are going to check out. They're saying, I'm not going to vote. You know, it's just gotten too toxic. And uh, we want people to have a home with us at We the People to fight the anti-democratic forces in this country led by the MAGA movement, the Trump movement. But also we want to highlight the really cool things going on in the country. There's a lot of solutions that are out there. There's a comeback of the steel industry, MDMA and psilocybin. And these things are healing veterans from their post-traumatic stress. There's amazing mindfulness programs in schools that are helping kids deal with their trauma, the programs like Inner Explorer and others. We're going to highlight these things, build an organization that supports them, and we're going to start moving the needle in the country around some of these broken systems that have been broken for so long. And we need new ideas if we're going to fix these old problems. And that's what uh, we're going to be doing at We the People. So let's talk about Ohio. Big day for Ohio on Tuesday. Republicans decided to run a special election. You guys have a special name for it, issue, right? Yeah, yeah, they're called issues and state issues to amend the Constitution, yeah. Right, to raise the threshold to 60% in order to have constitutional amendments. They failed quite spectacularly 
What does this mean? You know, we think of Ohio as such a red state now, and I'm sure, you know, as a Democrat from Ohio, you think of it that way. But, you know, if you look back on the most recent elections, you know, even though they did ultimately elect J.D. Vance, it was very much he really underperformed. I mean, doesn't it seem to you like your state is is uh, changing? You know, we have a Republican senator and we have a Democratic senator. Sherrod Brown is still our senator here. I think Ohio is a toss-up state, honestly. And I, I just think that, you know, the way the perception of the National Democratic Party in Ohio is not good. And I've, you know, said that for years and years and years. And let me give you let me give you two good examples. One was what just happened on Tuesday. Right. Here's a, a, a small cabal of extremists. Jim Jordan was leading the charge. And these guys that want to say instead of 50 plus one for a referendum in Ohio to change the Constitution, you have to move that to 60 percent of the vote, which is basically saying, you know, minority rule. They were taking rights away and primarily around abortion. But there were a lot of libertarians. There were a lot of, you know, pro-choice Republicans. There were a lot of Republicans. This is like this is a power grab by the extremists. And and so it went down because it was taking power away from working class people. Set that next to what happened in 2011 when then Republican Governor John Kasich and the Republican legislature tried to take away collective bargaining rights. We had a huge campaign. To put, we put that on the ballot, had a huge campaign. We won that with 63%. Okay. So here's my point, Molly, is that when this is a working class state with Midwestern sensibilities, it's not an extreme state. And what's happened is that the Republicans have gerrymandered and redistricted their way into a super majority. And that in conjunction with, I think, the Democrats getting away from the economic messages that play well to those Rust Belt towns down the Ohio River, Toledo, Youngstown, Akron, Cleveland. Like these are working class towns. They want to talk straight jobs and economics, pensions, infrastructure, building stuff, you know, manufacturing. And so if the party gets off of that and it's now seen as not into that, it hurts us. But when you put the straight issue on the ballot, we win. So we just got to, we got to crack that code here in Ohio. And I think a lot of other states and and we should have a dominant majority right now. I mean, not to get completely on a soapbox, but I get frustrated because we are running against insurrectionists. We are running against really, really, really bad people. It shouldn't even be close. I just want to push back for a minute on this because I know that there is. And look, I mean, I have, you know, sat on many a panel with many a Democratic politician who has said, you know, like we're distracting from the issue should be manufacturing and not LGBTQ. But I think that more and more and and I think that may have been truer in 2016, 2017, 2018. But now we have a situation where. The Republicans have really decided that they're going to target trans kids and LGBTQ. I mean, in a way that it's not even about civil liberties anymore. It's about like, are we going to protect these people from the very scary? I mean, they're bullies. Right. And I don't think you cannot address those issues. Like, I think, you know, they are really I mean, some of them are really making a case. You know, they're they're quietly making overtures towards genocide. It's really scary. And I would also add that their war on LGBTQ is part of a larger war against democracy. Right. I mean, the ballot initiatives and the, you know, taking away choice and the, you know, don't say gay laws are all sicknesses from the same illness. I'm glad you just said that, because I think we're having conversations like this. We've got to be abundantly clear. There is absolutely zero tolerance for that level of, of bullying and systemic bullying and the, all of this bullshit that these guys have been pushing. And you have to fight it aggressively. You don't, you know, you don't give an inch ever on those issues. The point I want to make, and I think this is a pro-choice state in Ohio, this is a pro-choice country. You know, I live in Columbus, Ohio now, like the, the gay community here is thriving, right? Thriving. And so there's a, there's a level of tolerance in states, you know, with a Midwestern sensibility. My point is 
that when you have people, if you go around Ohio, you go down the Ohio River Route 7, and you see the loss of manufacturing, you see the communities falling apart, you see the addiction, the heroin, then the fentanyl, you go and see the deindustrialization, that those folks are just trying to scrape by. They're with us, I think, on, on these other issues. If you're not talking directly to them about their job, their wages, their pension, their the healthcare costs, their prescription drug costs, and I think that's what Sherrod Brown does so well here, which is why he wins. He's one of the most progressive senators you know, in the, in the uh, Congress, in the Senate. Right. But he has a populist message. He does. He does. So we can do both is my point. But, you know, we just the, the working class folks. And here's, a you know, another point is, you know, we've seen the numbers go down with African-American voters. We've seen the numbers go down with Latino voters, even against even with Trump, who, you know, was Mr. Charlotte's and, and and Mr. Yanking immigrant, you know, from their kids at the border. Like, how is he doing that? And I think the answer to that is that those are working class people, happen to be black, happen to be Latino, that don't see the Democrats as talking enough about the economic stuff. So that's just, we can do it, but we have to because the alternative is, is not good. I just want to sort of get into this for a minute. I think that's right, but I also, I wonder how much of that is Democrats not, I mean, for example, Right now, the economic story is that Joe Biden managed to, you know, like him, hate him, whatever. He managed to really stem what was supposed to be a recession and that we're going ahead towards a more of a soft landing. Now, whatever that looks like, it is a victory of policy, right? Between that and the chips act where they're building, you know, my, you know, they're building these chips in America for the first time, infuriating China, but also, Uh you know, look, I mean, the part of the argument here is that there are people in the middle of this country who got up one day and their good jobs were gone. Right. I mean, and they could not have the same level of living standard of living that their parents had had. And they were furious as well. They should be because they hadn't done anything and they had seen their jobs disappear. But as much in my lifetime as I've ever seen, Biden has actually moved a lot of these, you know, has tried as much as possible. I mean, again, globalization cannot be undone. But the idea of bringing a lot of this manufacturing back to the United States is something that Trump would never have done. I mean, so isn't this a failure on messaging? Yeah, it is. But I mean, that's that's kind of like, like, you know, the point I was making earlier, like when you just put these issues on the ballot, we win on minimum wage. They, you know, you can look throughout the country. I think even in like Missouri, they won like a collective bargaining thing a year or two ago. That was just an issue on the ballot, you know. So that's the point. We If, if we can align our our values, our beliefs, our message. Uh, and especially with everything that has been done, which has been amazing, like we we finally have an industrial policy in the United States of America. I screamed about it for 20 years in Congress. We finally have one. We're making semiconductors. We're making batteries. We're making electric vehicles. We're making com- component parts to wind and solar. Like we're doing it now. But if you ask the average American, you know, who did that, they have no clue. And so I think, you know, President Biden needs to have a very energetic grassroots campaign highlighting these things. Um, you know, the, the comeback of the steel industry, one of the things we're going to do it, it, we the people, you know, we're going to do a video about that because that's it's amazing what's happened here at places like Cleveland Cliffs, which are steelworker union jobs. So we have a lot to talk about. The president has a lot to talk about. It's got to be done well. Because, as I said, like the fact that that some of these polls are even remotely close to me is like we're right on most of these issues, but we've not yet figured out quite how to talk about it. And I think part of it, too, is that, you know, I think people are pretty frustrated. They they don't see the government working uh, for them. It is inefficient. We do spend two and a half times more on healthcare than all the other industrialized countries and get worse results. We need a preventative healthcare system. You know, we need trauma-informed care in our schools. We need good healthy food. We need to bust up the industrial food, uh, 
you know, uh, industrial food systems here in the United States that are corporate driven. And now we got half the country with diabetes or pre-diabetes. We can do food as medicine. And that's kind of, you know, the way the people think we want to highlight those things that are going on so we can get some oxygen and energy behind them, some money behind these things. And then let's take this, you know, all these initiatives and create an America 2.0. I think people are dying for it. And that's what we want to do. We the people. Yeah. Explain to us a little bit about what it looks like on the ground in Ohio with the Democratic Party. I mean, you have Sherrod Brown, wildly popular, running for reelection, but it has been a very tough state. I mean, do you think there's a chance now to kind of change the narrative in Ohio after this vote? Yeah, I think so. We have a we have a good uh, new party chair, uh, Liz Walters. You know, she has not been in very long, but she she really understands what's going on. Um, you know, so we're we're moving in the right direction. I think this was a huge win uh, because it is going to give us some some energy. You know, just any sports team, any anything you're doing, you got to get a couple of wins. You got to get some points up on the board to get some energy and momentum. And I think you know the base is pretty excited now. So. And, and we have all this economic development happening here that are that's directly connected to the chips program. Intel's coming here, Molly. They're going to build, I think it's ten or twenty billion dollars to put in a new new chip campus to make chips. The jobs are going to pay like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Honda's putting a new uh, car plant here. We got battery plants going everywhere. You know, it, so like here in Ohio, things we are benefiting directly from those policies that that people don't know about. And I think having shared on the ballot here, he's going to be talking about it. We'll be talking about it. I'm sure the president will be talking about it. So I think there's real a real chance for us to, to flip this here. Tim Ryan, so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. I would love to come back. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Molly. And I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Jake Biddle is a staff writer at Grist covering climate impact and author of The Great Displacement. Welcome to Fast Politics, Jake Biddle. Thank you so much for having me. We're here talking about the great displacement, climate change and the next American migration. First, I think if we're going to talk about this, we got to start by talking about Hawaii. We got to talk about the most current fire this fire season. Actually, fire season hasn't even started. How is Hawaii linked to climate? Yeah, so I think it's still, like you said, it's very recent, so it's still a little bit difficult to say, but I think that we know a few things, right? One is that the fire seems to have been started by an episode of high winds that was caused by a, a tropical storm that sort of passed near Hawaii that didn't hit it. Then there had been a drought beforehand, right? So that a lot of the non-native uh, grassland species were already very dry, which made it easier for the fire to spread. And so even though the ignition itself, like we don't know what caused right. the ignition and we don't know to what extent, you know, this specific hurricane or this specific drought might have been caused by climate change. So they have to do attribution studies on those things. We do know that flash droughts, right, and severe tropical storms both seem to be getting worse as the world gets warmer. So I think that, you know, the, what you can definitely say is that this is the kind of thing that we would expect to see more of all over the world. Even though this specific thing, you know, scientists haven't quite done the studies yet, right? right? But we, yeah, I mean, I think all the elements here are related to climate, right? Right, yeah. I think it's like the the way that I would say, right, is like that there's a certain set of ingredients. There's a certain like cocktail of ingredients that climate change seems to make more common, right? And so this is a, a genre of event that we've seen more and more of as the world gets warmer. With Hawaii, 
It's funny because it's like you're seeing already the schizophrenia conservatives are finding themselves in, right? Like you're looking at climate change, you're looking at enormous fires, stuff that we have never, I mean, I'm 44, I have never had, if fire season is a new thing, right? Like that was not how it was 20 years ago. I think it must be hard even for them. I mean, they must at some point, and we saw this in this recent Fox News thing where they, you know, there was a opinion hosted a whole sort of opinion section. I mean, all of Fox News's opinion, but, you know, they're covering the fire one a- minute and then they're doing these long rants about how climate hysteria is taking over the left. So I think you're starting to see it has become very difficult for some conservative politicians to deny that there's some role, human role in the warming of the earth, right? But I do think you still see a lot of, certainly in the media, right? And then a lot of elected officials as well will do their best to sort of poke holes in the the narrative of climate change or just in the general fear that people have about climate change or the sense that like the world is is warming rapidly and it's human beings fault. Like I think that one example of this right is like after there were these fires in Greece yeah. earlier this year, it was reported that initial cause of the fire was was arson, right? Like somebody set the fire. And a lot of conservative media outlets were it's not climate change, it's arson, right? Like which is like Obviously, like an incredible category error, but it actually is unrelated. But I think like with gun violence, right, there's a desire in the conservative media to not give the left like a good example. Right. So they do anything they can to show that an example of a problem actually isn't an example of that problem. Right. So the fires in Greece on climate change are arson. A gun violence event isn't because of two lax gun laws. It's because of mental health. Right. So there's a there's a way of like the reality seems to endorse the liberal position on climate change and the conservatives try to fight against that wherever they can. Right. Let's talk about your book. Let's talk about migration. Let's talk about what you're seeing and what, why did you decide to write this book? What was going on in your brain? Yeah. So I thought that it's when I started working on the book, this was like in early 2020, it seemed that a lot of people were thinking, a lot of people in the United States were thinking about climate change as something that happens either you know, very far away, like in Southeast Asia or Central America, or it's going to happen in the U.S., but not yet. You know, maybe in a couple of decades, it's going to be here for us. And, and by the time that the book came out, I actually think that it started to yeah. change. But the reason why I wanted to write the book was to show people that, you know, actually already in the United States, thousands, tens of thousands of people had lost their homes to climate disasters, had never made it back to their original homes, and they were already moving to some extent in an attempt to escape risk, but also just in the sort of chaotic process of getting bounced around and and kicked out of homes and thrown into new homes by these disasters. I wanted to show that because I thought that media coverage of disasters like wildfires and hurricanes tended to end, you know, right after the wildfire ended. And I wanted to show that there was a really long process of displacement and relocation going on that, that didn't tend to make it into, you know, cable news segments or things like that. I want to ask you about that because this relates to a a sort of underreported but really important story about Florida, everyone's favorite state that's going to be underwater. That's where I'm from, by the way. (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about what is happening there with insurance? Right. Yeah, this is a really important point. So the climate change, it doesn't just cause physical damage to property when there's a hurricane, although that certainly happened in Florida last year. It also stresses like pre-existing markets and systems of distributing risk. So the housing market, you know, in places that's been hit pretty hard, sometimes home values will take a dip. And then in the insurance market in Florida, like the cost of responding to these disasters and paying out claims on insurance has gotten so high that a lot of insurers have gone under, right? They've collapsed and the, the market can no longer allocate all that risk efficiently. So what's happening, like two things, right? Costs are going up quite a bit for almost everybody. And the state legislature, which sort of a uh, set of sort of pawns of DeSantis, they basically do whatever he asked them to do, has done a, a bunch of things to try to stabilize this market, right? So in effect, they've, they've come close to socializing it, right? Like they've, they've injected a lot of public support into the market. But basically, it's become impossible to insure all the property that's at risk from hurricanes in Florida. Like, there's just too many people living in places that are too vulnerable. And so a lot of homeowners at the lower end of the income scale are now finding that it's very difficult for them to afford the cost of insurance, which they need in order to keep the homes that they have. 
Right. And I, I think like one of the the huge scandals of our time, which has been also underreported, is this there is a government backstop to a lot of this insurance that benefits the wealthy. Can you talk about that? Right. Yeah. So there's this thing called the the National Flood Insurance Program. So it's very confusing, but like wind damage from hurricanes is covered by the private insurance market, but flood damage, like water, is covered by a, a federal program because it's like almost impossible for insurers to make a profit by selling flood insurance. So the federal government does it. And this is kind of, it, it's a really, really broken system. Like the price setting is just very inefficient. And it subsidizes, sorry, go on. Yes, it's subsidized um, because like Congress mandated that it be quote unquote affordable. It's not affordable for people at the lower end of the income scale, but for people at the upper end of the income scale, like people who have beachfront mansions in Florida, it's really cheaper than it should be, right? So basically what's happening is that the taxpayers are subsidizing the cost of rebuilding homes on the waterfront of Florida over and over and over again. And it's essentially like a, it's an unintended consequence of this law. It just hasn't worked out the way that the framers thought that it would. The framers of the law, not the constitution. And just like no one's willing to fix it. And so what you have is like, we've essentially bailed out people who live on these waterfronts of Florida and other parts of the country over right. and over and over again. And, in and the discourage Hamptons, them. Yes, and the Hamptons too. You know, these are rich people who live on the waterfront are getting a government handout. Yeah, and in 2012, when Congress actually, they tried to fix it and there was such a, a backlash from Congress, mostly in New Jersey and New York State, that they undid it two years later. They said, ah, actually, never mind. Which is exactly... One of the fundamental problems with some of this climate legislation is that we're throwing good money after bad, right? Like this is money that should be going to, you know, EV market or, you know, chargers or uh, solar panels and not to rebuilding rich people's houses when they're too close to the ocean. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I think that the, the problem is that historically people who live in vulnerable areas haven't borne the costs that they were incurring, right? So another example is in California, right? Like the U.S. Forest Service and CAL FIRE, those are taxpayer-funded departments. They front the cost of putting out the fires in vulnerable areas. So they're essentially subsidizing the cost of living in very vulnerable parts of the state, right? And so making people bear the costs that they are incurring is, um, it's very unpopular, right? Because in a lot of cases, the people who live in these places have a lot of political clout but also because it, a lot of them didn't exactly know how much risk they were incurring. So it's a very difficult process of shifting that risk away from the general taxpayer onto the people who are actually incurring it by living where they do. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and I want to pull out for a minute with this idea and talk about what it means. So what we're seeing, this is this, this Florida or even just coastal wherever, coastal New York, coastal the Hamptons, coastal New Jersey. This is climate change making places that used to be safe to live, unsafe to live. Talk to me about what that looks like in the rest of the world. Yeah. So I think in the rest of the world, it's a much more advanced process, right? So after big hurricanes, like in Nicaragua and Honduras, like recently, Guatemala, like recently we've seen like entire villages, regions of the country depopulated, not only because the housing was destroyed, right? But because these are primarily agricultural communities and it's impossible to grow crops when your whole town is underwater. Like in Pakistan last year, you saw like almost a third of the country was underwater. And the same the ingredients of displacement are the same, right? Like you lose your home, you don't have the financial ability to build it back, then you have to go somewhere else. In the United States, because the housing market's so much more rigid, credit's more available, people don't tend to end up in, you know, massive displacement camps. So they don't tend to act, like flock to cities by the thousands and looking for some kind of refuge. Can we just stop for a second? I just want to ask you a question about this. Could that actually lead to an American economic disaster the way that it did for us with the cheap mortgages in 2008? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think not to the same degree. Like, I don't think that you could see a global financial contagion, but there's certainly the chance that like smaller and more regionally concentrated banks and lenders that that are more exposed to this would see like like many of them could go under. And like certainly a lot of individual homeowners, if there were like a sudden drop in the value, like let's say a hurricane hits, right? And then suddenly everyone's like, 
oh my god i don't want to live there like that was that was the last straw like home values upon and people would be underwater on their mortgages like millions of people potentially and that would be a huge like a systemic financial problem for the united states but i don't know that it would lead to like a global recession the way that the 2008 but in part because they tried to put safeguards against that kind of thing and the meteors they might have been they might work in that Right. And I mean, it's just a weird side question, but continue on talking about what does the global migration look like? Right. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the, probably a common misconception right, is that all the people who get displaced in a, you know, a, a famine event in Somalia, right, or a flood in Pakistan, they all go to the developed world. I mean, the vast majority of climate driven migration happens within an individual country. Like it's people leaving flooded villages and heading to major cities, right, and trying to find some way to adapt in that way. But I think that, you know, over time, as this displacement becomes, you know, chronic, you probably will see growing trends of migration from the developing world to the developed world. In fact, like you could argue it's already happened because a lot of migration to Europe has been driven by droughts and famines. A lot of migration to the United States, like in 1998, Hurricane Mitch was like the main reason why there was a ton of migration from El Salvador. But like, I think the big question that I have, and I don't know what the answer to it is, is whether this migration driven by climate change will be understood in the developed world as climate migration, right? As a climate justice issue, or whether it will continue to be routed through the politics of, of immigration and asylum, which is what happens now. It's so funny because I think about for such a long time, my husband and I would always say like, well, eventually the science will be undeniable. And what we saw with the pandemic is actually they, you know, they'll be taking the horse to warmer even when the science is undeniable. There will be no moment where they will cut where the right. And that means, you know, all of those senators who are making decisions for all of us and Congress people and, you know, Donald Trump will ever sort of come to their senses. So it's really going to be a situation that 52 percent of the American population is going to have to deal with. It's become clear, right, that there's no way to make a scientific argument that's convincing, like in the political arena. Right. And if you think about it, like climate change is one of the only issues where that's like the main way we've tried to make the argument. Right. Like nobody talks about racial inequality or abortion. Like, like those are like you make moral arguments, right, about like what's the right way to organize a society. That's not the way we've done it with climate change. So like scientific facts show this. And so you should do that. I think that like the primary persuasive argument will probably end up being an economic one, right? Like even a Republican politician likes to show that they built a giant new levy in their town. Like they want to stand there with the golden shovel. They also want to show, hey, like there's a big EV battery factory in my town. Like, look, it got 2,000 new jobs. One just opened in, in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. Like she even praised it, right? Like, so it's like, that's the argument that's going to make the difference. And I think that like the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, like you'll see that Republicans don't want to run away from the results of that, even though they didn't vote for it. That's fine, I guess. Right. Like the bill right. was passed without Republican support. Yeah. Like it, that's that's good enough as long as they don't stand in the in the doorway of the factory and prevent from being built. Like it's we still get a little uh, farther toward decarbonization. But yeah, I don't know that there's any way of of. <laughs> penetrating the veil of ignorance that's around the conservative movement on the issue of climate science. Like it just doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem like it's been effective any of the scientific communication strategies. Like they've all failed, right? So I don't know. I always think of Texas as one of the most fucked up states, but Texas had this summer of clean energy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they inadvertently. Like, yeah. I mean, uh, and again, it's like, it's an economic argument, right? Like for any number of reasons, right? Like the decline in cost of photovoltaics and just the fact that Texas is like the, it's a sunny place, obviously. And it's also like, it's been called like Saudi Arabia of wind. Right. <laughs> That's so insane. Like it's very, very cheap to produce yeah. renewable power there. And so, you know, even a Republican politician that might have a cultural or a, a stated cultural opposition to those forms of power generation, they're not going to sit there and say, I would really like my constituents to pay more on their energy bills. They already pay a lot. Right? Like, I'm not going to make it any worse. So because it's in many ways deregulated, right? Like there's nothing to stop people from building those facilities, plugging them into the grid, and then people save money on their power bill. Right. So like, I think politicians in Texas have, they've sort of said and threatened that they're going to stop this transition away from fossil fuels. They certainly want to protect fossil fuel interests, but there is nothing they can really do uh, short of like you know, regulating the market altogether to stop 
clean energy from being built out in places where it's advantageous. And now the cost has fallen far enough. Like that ball is already rolling, right? That That's not the result of the Inflation Reduction Act. That's just because clean energy is, is good business. And as much as everything's like fossil fuels, they also like good business, I guess. Well, also the grid is very unstable. And during last year, we saw that it's actually... It can fail. And so, you know, if it's a choice between green power and no power, these guys are going to go for it. It is that fundamental, incredible and strange disconnect where you have. So I just I have like one more question because we're almost out of time. One of my real interests is desalinization. Why is America not further along with that. Israel has been a country that has a lot of very complicated stuff going on, but has been very good about using that. There's a really, really interesting debate going on among like water experts right now about the way out of the the Western water crisis, right? And it certainly seems like even though desalination is desalinization, I don't actually know which one of the people say both. Even though desalinization is it can be really expensive, and there's also concerns people from who live nearby will often allege that the plants themselves are polluting. Like it certainly seems like in a targeted way, it could be very advantageous for certain communities. Right? So they've talked about it in Southern California. They've moved along with a couple of them. Arizona really wants to build one in Mexico and then remove some salt from water and import it, or just trade it on the Colorado River. I think that the reason why you haven't seen more of it is because right now it's very, very difficult to build large infrastructure projects of any kind, uh, especially in the water arena. Like we built a ton of dams and stuff in the 50s and 60s, and we haven't done that a lot since. And I think that a lot of jurisdictions have found that it's actually just as easy to conserve water, like just to use less as it is to build facilities to get more. So like Las Vegas, for instance, has almost doubled in size since 2000. And they actually use less water now than they did in 2000 because they took out all the turf and stuff. Like they're just done, found a lot of efficiencies. So I think that anybody who is like an expert on water would tell you that there's no one solution. And desalinization is probably an item on the menu, right? But I think that so far it's been difficult to build those plants for like all kinds of permanent and political opposition reasons. So interesting. Jake, I hope this wasn't too annoying, but, you know, I had all these climate questions no, that no, I saved good. up, you know, in my head. And and I feel like it's the summer and our country is our country and the rest of the world is burning again. And it, we have to just cover this as much as possible. So thank you. Yeah, it certainly seems like it's at a fever pitch right now. Thank you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Maui Jung Fest, these Trump lawyers, ooh, they've gotten themselves in some trouble. What are you seeing here? So this is incredible. Trump allies attempted to access voting systems after the 2020 election as part of a broader push to produce evidence that could back up the former president's baseless claim of widespread fraud. These guys... I just, the best, the best. I am without speech, except to say that these guys, this is not what lawyers are supposed to do. And this is real fucking crimey. We call them the gang that couldn't crime straight for a reason. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.